Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're taking a look at the politics of Athens, Greece way, way back in the day as it strove to break free of its monarchy and play around with the early days of democracy. We've covered the heights of classical Athenian democracy way back in the early days of this show with the life of Pericles. And just like the Pericles episode, this will be more about the city of Athens itself more than focusing on any single person. But the two main players of this episode will be the legislators Draken, also called Draco, and Solon, two men who had very different approaches to how the laws of Athens should play out. Draken is the guy who gives us the word draconian, so take a wild guess as to how his part of the story will play out. But this is quite a long way away from the glory days of classical Greece. Athens was a completely different city, not even a major powerhouse, as we'll explore in the background history lesson. It was essentially a citywide laboratory for political ideologies to spring out of. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to Athens in the 7th century BCE in The High Price of Freedom. In the background history lesson this time around, as I alluded to earlier, we're going to be discussing the ancient history of Athens, Greece. At this point in time, we are in the Archaic period of Greek history. This is before the heights of Classical Greece, which is the time period most people would think of when picturing ancient Greece. White marble everywhere, democracy flourishing, 300 Spartans, and all of that. The Archaic period occurred after the Greek Dark Ages, which ended sometime around 800 BCE. The Greek Dark Ages corresponded with almost a complete collapse of every major culture in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. The New Kingdom of Egypt was collapsing, that's New Kingdom with a capital N and K to refer to a specific time period, not saying that Egypt was new, it was very old at this point. Cities on the eastern coast in modern-day Israel, Lebanon, and Syria under control of the Hittite civilization were falling apart as the Bronze Age in this part of the world came to an end with an economic downfall. This economic downfall may have actually been the fault of the main ethnic group in mainland Greece, the Mycenaeans, also sometimes called the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans were a Bronze Age culture who existed from about 1750 BCE to 1100 BCE. These were the people Greek legends like the Trojan War were about. And yes, the Trojan War was real and may have been part of the reason for the Greek Dark Ages. But we're here to talk about Athens, so let's switch gears. Archaeologists have found evidence of people living in the area of modern-day Athens dating back thousands of years, possibly back to the 4th millennium BCE. By the 1400s BCE, Athens was a proper polis, a Greek city-state, under the Mycenaean civilization and was home to a fortress at the site of the Acropolis. This fortress may have also doubled as a palace. The name of the city itself is of uncertain origins. Technically, the official story is that it was named after the Greek goddess Athena. We know that Athena was being worshipped in the general Greek area at this time, but even some people in ancient Greece, such as Plato, thought maybe the goddess wasn't actually the etymological source of the city-state. Unlike other cities, going back to the likes of Troy, Athens managed to survive the Bronze Age collapse into the Greek Dark Ages. During all this time, Athens was ruled by kings. Up until the Greek Dark Ages, and probably a bit into it, these kings would have been Mycenaean leaders. 
However, the official, meaning completely made up, list of kings included many men that just didn't exist. The mythological hero Theseus of Minotaur killing fame is listed as both founder and king of the city, though there's also about half a dozen other founders listed too. It should also be noted that Athens, despite being very old, was not that big of a deal at the time. It was just another city-state. This was true even up through the 8th century BCE, because epic poem writer Homer barely makes mention of the city, and his audience wouldn't have cared about the historical inaccuracy of making Athens a big deal in the Trojan War, even if it wasn't a major place back then. And for the record, Athens won't actually become a big deal until after the events of this story when they strike it big with a victory during the Greco-Persian Wars in the 5th century BCE. The system of kings in Athens eventually gave way to the rule of the Archons. The last king of Athens was the semi-legendary King Codrus. In the vague history, aka stories, we have, it's said that his sons Medon and Acastus ruled not as co-kings but as Archons. An Archon in ancient Greece was somewhat equivalent to a mayor, governor, or prime minister. They basically were the leaders of the polis. Originally, this position was hereditary, not making it too dissimilar to that of a monarch. In 753 BCE, the hereditary system was dismantled and Archons were just elected from the Athenian aristocracy. Back then, Archons held their position for a decade before a new Archon was elected. Eventually, the power of the Archons was lessened. Instead of 10 years, an Archon only ruled for one year. During this time, years were referred to by the name of the Archon in charge. So, for instance, the year 682 BCE would have been named the Year of Creon, the first single-year Archon. Also, there were now three Archons. The eponymous Archon was the main ruler and oversaw much of the executive functions of Athens. This was the Archon who the year would be named after. The Polemarch was the leader of the Athenian military. And finally, the Archon Basileus oversaw religious ceremonies and homicide trials. Athens was becoming vaguely more democratic now, but it was still a city where laws were really only known and made for the upper class. It would need a new layer of paint, well actually several layers, in order to get to the level of democracy it's currently known for. Let's actually start this story with a man named Chilon. Chilon, at the beginning of our story, was a wealthy man from Athens who was well known for having won the Olympic Games sometime in the mid to late 7th century BCE. Yes, back then, one person could be said to win the Olympics. Well, sometime around 632 BCE, Chilon was visiting the oracle at Delphi, the most important oracle in all of ancient Greece. The oracle gave Chilon some weird advice that he should try to seize power in Athens during an important festival to the god Zeus. Chilon interpreted this oracular advice to mean he should stage a coup during the next Olympics. It's generally believed that Chilon was more than willing to do this considering he wasn't really down with the current political scene in Athens. The aristocracy was losing its power. Why could common folk be archons now? Also, there were nine of them? How could Athens allow this to happen? He would show them what for and take over the city as a tyrant. Okay, so like dictators in ancient Rome, a tyrant in ancient Greece was a political position that had a different meaning to how the word is used today. 
In modern times, a tyrant is an evil ruler. In ancient Greece, a tyrant was a political opportunist who came to power through unconventional means, usually through populist uprisings like coups. Tyrant was completely devoid of any moral meanings. You had some good tyrants and some bad tyrants. In fact, Chilon's father-in-law, Theogenes, was a tyrant in the city-state of Megara. Chilon, possibly inspired by this relationship, decided to enlist the help of Theogenes in his takeover of Athens. Chilon used his position as a local hero to garner support for his political machinations. His celebrity status proved to be exactly what was needed. I mean, if Michael Phelps or Usain Bolt went around and said they were planning to take over New York City, I'm sure they'd be able to get a decent amount of support too. Because that's the world we live in. Anyway, things quickly went south when the Nine Archons of Athens confronted Chilon's coup. Further backlash forced the followers of Chilon to retreat and bar themselves within the Temple to Athena on the Acropolis. It should also be noted that Chilon himself was not a member of that group, at least according to some sources. This is the first recorded historical event in Athenian history, so history does get a bit muddy. Just know that Chilon may or may not have been in the temple when the next events went down. So if he wasn't there, Chilon had managed to slip away while the rest of his followers hid inside the temple. The enemies of the coup surrounded the temple and laid siege. They held out until the people inside started dying from starvation. The followers of Chilon were then offered forgiveness if they surrendered and gave up on the coup. Some of the survivors agreed to the terms and exited the temple, only to be immediately killed by those who had said they would grant mercy. Some didn't even make it out of the temple before they were killed. After the rest of Athens found out about the events that occurred on the Acropolis, several families, including those of the Archons who had engaged in the murders, were exiled from the city. It's believed that the families had been tainted, and it would even eventually become known as Chilon's Curse. As for Chilon himself, well, if he was in the temple, he was just killed. If not, he was living in exile for the rest of his life, no doubt cursing Athens with every breath. But that about wraps it up for Chilon's story. He was a man who very much saw the writings on the wall that Athens was becoming much more democratic. The city was becoming one not ruled by nobles but by laws, and those laws affected the upper class just as much as the rest of the population. About a decade after the Chilonian affair, the people of Athens started seeing the same thing Chilon had seen. Athens was no longer a place where the rich could do whatever they wanted, including bending the laws to fit their needs. The politicians in Athens realized something needed to be done to fix this situation. There needed to be a formal code of laws, and it needed to be available for everyone to read, at least those who were actually literate. Now, despite having executive and judicial forms of the government with the Archons and the Areopagus, a council of elders made up mostly of former Archons, there was no formal legislative branch of the Athenian government. Like I said, the laws were kind of a free-for-all that could easily be bent to suit one's needs. The most common way to settle things was via never-ending blood feuds between clans. This meant most grievous offenses were actually settled personally in whatever ways the parties felt were correct. So now enter Draken. 
We don't know much about who he was before any of this. Draken possibly wasn't even his real name, but a nickname meaning sharp-eyed. He was also most likely a member of the nobility, if not from Athens, then still from within the region of Attica, the Greek peninsula where Athens is located. The citizens who were able to vote at this period in Athenian history selected Dracon as a legislator of a new constitution. Dracon is often thought of as Athens' first lawmaker. At the very least, he's the first recorded legislator in Athenian history. Around 622 BCE, Dracon drafted up a series of laws that would come to be known as the Draconian Constitution. In order for everyone to see these new laws, the Constitution was carved into wooden tablets and positioned on devices called axones, three-sided pyramid structures that could pivot on a central rotating stand. This system proved to be a huge success as the axones were planted across the city for the general public to see. There was just a slight problem with the new constitution. As the author's name very much suggests, the new laws were downright draconian. Unfortunately, we don't have a surviving record of the original draconian constitution. Even the recreations we have of it from a few centuries later have been mostly weathered away by time. So, unfortunately, we have to rely on the words of Greek historians writing a few centuries after the constitution was drafted. But here's essentially the main takeaway that made everyone a bit worried about what Draken had in mind. The punishment for many crimes, no matter if it was great or small, was death. The best case scenario you could look for in any crime was exile. According to Greek historian Plutarch, granted he was writing about seven centuries after the events, said the reason behind this harsh ruling was as follows. When asked why he had fixed the punishment of death for most offenses, Draco answered that he considered these lesser crimes to deserve it, and he had no greater punishment for more important ones. However, the Draconian constitution was more than just a death sentence for basically every Athenian. In fact, death was getting a new legal makeover from Draken. The main takeaway most historians give his constitution was that Draken made different distinctions between accidental and intentional homicides. The latter was punishable by death. The former simply resulted in the manslaughterer's exile. Even Draken's harshest critics agreed that this was a pretty good idea. There were other laws created that dealt with debts owed between two people. The punishments, however, were different depending on the social ranking of the two parties involved. If the person who owed a debt was of lesser social standing, they were enslaved to the person of higher social rank. If the roles were switched, i.e. the person who owed the debt was of higher social standing, the punishment was not slavery. We don't have a record of what that punishment was, but it was allegedly much more lenient. Draken also set up new ways to deal with crimes. For murder cases, he specified where these trials were to be held. The Areopagus was in charge of judicial cases involving intentional homicide. The court at the Delphinian, a temple to the god Apollo, was in charge of intentional homicides in which the accused was said to be justified. A third court at the Palladium, a temple to Athena, was in charge of accidental homicides. Finally, at least for the important parts we have information over, Dracon created the Council of the Four Hundred. 
This was a fairly democratic organization that allowed even more citizens, aka free male citizens, to join the government. There was just one, okay, several, caveats to how a free citizen could join. Wealth. Specifically, their wealth when it came to what kind of military equipment they could afford. The members of the council selected the nine archons as well as generals and cavalry commanders from among their ranks. Those chosen for the archons had to possess property value at no less than 10 mina. A mina was a unit of weight, and also currency, that was used throughout all of the ancient Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world, though with separate cultures using different amounts. Around this time, Amina was about 100 drachma, the Greek currency. For a fun bit of visualization, according to Plutarch, Amina at this point was equal to about the price of 100 sheep. So to be chosen as an Archon, you had to have a property value of at least 1,000 sheep. Things were even more wild for generals and cavalry commanders, because they had to have property of at least 100 mina. On top of that, they also had to have children born within wedlock that were at least 10 years of age, because these positions were hereditary. There was clearly a lot going on with this constitution, and a lot of it was not very popular. While we don't know the full story, it's said that Draken was run out of Athens for his creation. However, they still kept his constitution around for a little bit. A popular story, which may or not be true, says that Draken eventually found himself living on the Greek island of Aegina. One day, he was in a theater with a bunch of people who still supported him. I don't know if he was performing or just there. Well, he was on stage and his supporters decided to applaud him by throwing articles of clothing at him. Apparently, so many things were thrown on top of Draken that he was crushed and suffocated under a bunch of hats and other articles of clothing. And if that's not a way to go, I don't know what is. We don't have a date for Draken's death, but we do know that his constitution was also soon to meet its end not too long after its author's exile. Moving away from Draken, it's time we talk about our next big name, Solon. Solon was born around 630 BCE to a noble family that claimed descendants from Codrus, the last king of Athens. He was also possibly related to the philosopher Plato, who was said to be a descendant of Solon's brother. Instead of resting on his family's laurels, Solon decided to get into the trading business, where he made a massive amount of money. So even though he was technically a noble, his wealth came from business instead of land. This meant the other aristocrats of Athens slightly distanced themselves from Solon. Besides business, Solon was also an avid poet. His talent for both written and spoken word would prove monumental for his later dealings throughout his life. Solon's first major use of his skills in rhetoric came during his time he spent in the military. At this point in history, Athens and the city of Megara were arguing over who had control of the island of Salamis, which was just off the coast of both cities. Plutarch wrote that Solon's initial attempts at military action against Megara were not very successful. In order to raise morale amongst his troop, he wrote a poem about Salamis, which allegedly proved to be just the morale boost his soldiers needed. In 595 BCE, Solon finally achieved a military victory against Megara. 
Unfortunately, Megara still refused to acknowledge Athens' claim to Salamis. In order to settle the island's claims once and for all, Athens and Megara turned to the city of Sparta to make a decision. The Spartan kings voted in favor of Athens after Solon spelled out the Athenian case for why they had ownership of the island. Probably due to his great military and rhetorical triumph, Solon was elected as the eponymous archon for the year 594 BCE. He saw that there was still plenty of social upheaval in Athens during this time. While the draconian constitution may have fixed some things, it was doing much more harm than good. Someone needed to step in and actually shake things up. Luckily, that was exactly what Solon had planned all along. Solon's reforms were the death of the draconian constitution. Almost every single law Draken had implemented, along with the death penalty that came along with it, was repealed. The only laws Solon kept were those regarding homicide and the distinction between accidental and purposeful killings. Otherwise, the landscape of Athens was once more being transformed. Like with Draken, Solon's reforms sought to make Athens a slightly more democratic society, mostly by lessening the prestige and power of the Areopagus. Granted, even after the reforms were implemented, Athens was still a bit away from being a truly democratic society. First, Solon sought to restructure the social hierarchy of the city. Once again, things were based on the amassed wealth of a citizen. Instead of the mina, Solon's hierarchy was based on the unit of measure called the medimnos. A medimnos was a unit of volume used to measure dry grain. The size of a medimnos varied by region in Greece, but in Athens it was about 51.84 liters. The average ancient Greek family, a husband, wife, and about three kids, consumed around 25 medimnoi of food every year. The new social hierarchy consisted of four ranks. Highest was the Pentecostal medimnoi, then the hippes, aka the knights, the zugite, and the lowest were the thetes. The Pentecostal Medimnoi required an annual income of at least 500 Medimnoi, which is about 20 times the number of Medimnoi consumed by an average family. Hippes required an annual income of at least 300 Medimnoi, or needed to be free men who were able to take proper care of a horse. Zugite needed to possess an oxen yoke and at least 150 Medimnoi of income. Thetes were anyone with less than 150 medimnoi of annual income. Only the top two social classes could be voted into office as high-ranking political magistrates, such as archons. Zugite could also vote in those elections and could hold lower magistrate positions. Thetes were exempt from holding political office, but they could sit in on the general council, the ecclesia, and sit in on the jury and court of law. Over the years, as more legal disputes were brought before a jury instead of settled in person or in higher courts, the power of the Thetes grew. Solon also sought to greatly restructure the economy of the Athenian polis. Solon sought to act as a political moderate when doing this. He was not in favor of redistributing the wealth of the upper-class Athenians, but he also recognized the fact that there was a great disparity in wealth between the haves and the have-nots. In Solon's eyes, favoring either side in his reforms would only lead to social upheaval. Therefore, Solon sought to revitalize the economy instead of playing around with people's money. After all, his wealth came from trade, not land ownership. 
Solon was a businessman and he saw business as the way to help his city. One of the biggest economic reforms Solon enacted was a ban on the export of any grain or fruit besides olives. During this time, the poorer farmers living outside the city proper, who actually made up more of the Athenian population, could barely provide for themselves. Solon was hoping to allow these farmers to keep more of their grain. However, his special rule on olives made it so a lot more people switched to olive production in the hopes of getting rich with foreign trade. But here's the thing, olives are much, much harder to grow than wheat or barley. Also, you don't get olives growing until several years after you've initially planted the olive trees, so you're living on a deficit for a few years. However, Solon's economic reforms did in fact create a bustling market in exports for Athens. On top of all this, Solon sought to eliminate the idea of debt and slavery within Athens. Well, eliminate some modes of slavery. At this point in Athenian history, land ownership was hereditary. You couldn't sell your land or mortgage your home. This meant that if you were in tough times, you had to use your own life as collateral in terms of debt and be sold into slavery if you couldn't pay up. Under Solon's reforms, debt slavery was made illegal. The slate was wiped clean for all citizens. It's said that before Solon became Archon, his friends knew about this idea of wiping clean the slate of debts in the city and took out massive loans knowing they would be free of them soon enough. On top of all this, Solon freed every Athenian citizen who was a slave. This included Athenians who had been made slaves in other city-states and nations. However, it's believed that very few Athenian slaves abroad ever made it back to the city. Other reforms made under Solon included prohibiting wildly extravagant dowry requirements, introducing laws that made it easier for women to take part in inheritance, and possibly even creating city-funded brothels. It was Solon's hopes that Athens would become a city not run by the whims of the upper class. Like I said before, it would be a while before Athens became known as the place where democracy was allowed to thrive, but things were definitely moving in the right direction. And no one had to die in order to get these changes made. After his year as eponymous Archon, Solon left the city for 10 years. Before leaving, he made Athens promise to follow his new reforms for the 10 years he would be gone. And they did. Kind of. Political factions within the city soon grew tired of the new status quo. Politicians refused to stand down from their elected positions. Who was going to stop them? Solon? He was off in Egypt and Asia Minor. It was not even long before a new man rose to make himself the new tyrant of Athens, Isistratus, who happened to be a relative of Solon. While this eventually led to more factionalism among the Athenians, Pisistratus would become a champion of Solon's reforms, even if he played favorites with political positions. It's said that Pisistratus helped usher in an Athenian golden age. Following the laws of Solon, a new sense of Athenian identity was created. It was this national pride in the polis of Athens that allowed the Athenians to band together a couple centuries later when the Achaemenid Persians attempted their takeover of Greece. In fact, Solon's reforms were so popular among later Athenian politicians that they would later claim they had gotten their own ideas for laws from Solon's philosophy, long after his death. 
it would not be until after the Greco-Persian Wars where new reformers would come in to shake up the Athenian landscape and introduce radical ideas of democracy. The city would be run by everyone. Well, everyone with a massive asterisk following that. Though it was much better than how things were under Draken. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, it's back to Rome and the Julio-Claudians as we finally get into the weirder stories surrounding the reign of Emperor Caligula. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 